could swallow the sea. I can hold my breath and count to a zillion. I can fly. I can stretch and stretch for a million billion miles till I'm the highest man in the world. Yeah, well, I could become a giant robot with magic death rays. That's nothing, man. I can't be burnt. Like, I could eat flame and stick my head in an oven and close the door and turn invisible. Hey, will you kids keep that down in there? Your mother's got a splitting headache! And knock off that boasting! Same old senseless posturing has got you ready to junk your terrarium and start raising sea monkeys. Hold the bus. You've got the bragging rights to the best mix of freeform music and public affairs. Right here on WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor, 88.3, Radio Free. No lying. I can speak 12 languages and turn into plastic, man. Well, I could talk to animals and turn into Stretch Armstrong and the Flash. I've seen Star Wars and Planet of the Apes eight trillion times. Yeah, well, I've seen Tatum O'Neill naked. Yeah, well, I could eat 900 boxes of Count Chocula, and my uncle used to host Whopper Room, and he knows Count Chocula, Godzilla, and Bruce Lee personally. I've got an iron neck. I thought I told you to keep it down in there! If I hear one more word, you're getting head cheese for dinner, and I mean it! I can juggle machetes. Man, I ate the brown acid at Woodstock. You liar. You're listening to WCBN FM in Arbor 88.3. It's time for Living Writers. My name is Molly, and today we'll be listening to an interview we did um, a couple of weeks ago with author Deb Coletti, um, my co-host Sarah and I. So stay tuned for that. Free Speech Radio News comes up in one hour after the show at 5.30, and then it'll be time for Closets or for Close. Thank you. 
Okay, it looks like there's a little technical difficulty with my recording, but that's okay because I can just run into the other room and play it. So please bear with us for one more second, and then we'll get into the interview. Thanks for sticking around. listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Today we are speaking to Deb Coletti, who has written um, a few novels for young adults, including The Queen of Everything, Honey Baby Sweetheart, and most recently, Wild Roses. So, Deb, how did you end up writing for young adults? Well, it was actually inadvertent. I had uh, written five books, four of which my agent had, and were, was trying desperately to sell. And uh, my fifth book, The Queen of Everything, was actually picked up by a young adult editor at Simon & Schuster. And then I uh, was offered a three-book contract with them to do others. So I actually wrote The Queen of Everything for, for adults. So it was, it was a happy mistake. And uh, I think it's worked out really well because I believe that because I wrote for adults, teens maybe feel that that I don't really talk down to them and I also have a a large adult audience as well so it's worked out really nicely how did you actually get started as a writer then if you didn't set out with that in mind well um started as a writer well I think I I came this way I think I was a writer from the time I was maybe about seven years old um you know I was one of those geeky book lovers and I still am a geeky book lover, you know, that would go to the library with a big old stack of books. And and so I I always knew I wanted to be a writer. It's not something I studied when I went to the university, though. Um, I studied communications, actually, and and, uh, journalism. But um, I never took any creative writing classes because I think I thought they were all you know, full of people who dressed in all black and wore those little glasses and and that maybe I'd have to wear a beret or something and I've never looked good in berets. So I never took those kind of classes. But when I had little children, I, I thought, okay, now's the time. If I don't do this, I never will. And so one day I sort of had this talking to with myself that, that I would begin and not let go of this goal of becoming a novelist and getting published um, and and so I just I kind of decided this one day, as I was I was deathly afraid of of being one of those people who would say I always wanted to be a such and such, you know, and um, I thought that would be very depressing. So I I just kind of just, I just started one day writing and teaching myself everything I didn't learn at university, and uh, just as I say 
to audiences sometimes. You, you just have to be like a dog with a knotted sock where you hang on and don't let go till it gets accomplished. It's funny to hear you say you weren't into creative writing courses because a lot of the other young adult novelists we've talked to have said pretty much the same thing. Oh, have they, felt really? Even the ones that did do creative writing, um, Sarah Dustin, for instance, said she felt very out of place. You know, she's writing about the prom and everyone else is writing about death and darkness. It's interesting. <laughs> you guys have probably all, you should have, you know, had your own class for people like you guys. Although I write about death and darkness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not too prom. much of a prom writer, but yeah. death and darkness. But yeah, it's just... Um, I, I never did. No matter what I'm writing, I never felt comfortable. Maybe it's the group thing. Maybe we just don't belong in a group, even writer <laughs> groups. I don't know. Um, you said before that you have written books that were aimed at adults and that The Queen mm-hmm. of Everything was, in fact, aimed at adults. Mm-hmm. Do you see yourself trying to move more toward even more obviously aimed at adult fiction that maybe teenagers wouldn't enjoy? Or have you tried doing that? Um, actually, I don't really think about it in terms of category much at all, um, which I think... Is, is some sort of weird recipe that seems to work for me. I, um, I don't think, and again, I think this kind of helps with my teen readers is that I'm not really writing a teen book. Um, so I just, I write for people and, and therefore have audience of, of all different ages. And so while, uh, I may be writing a coming of age story with a, a teen protagonist and, do actually write other things as well, um, and short stories. And my books have people of all ages in them, and I think that's that's what what uh, my readers have been responding to. So, so yes, I write for I write for I write for all ages actually, and um, probably fifty percent of my audience is actually uh, adults, at least the ones that write to me. It's interesting to hear you say that because one thing that I noticed in um, all three of the books of yours that I've read that are out, Queen of Everything, Honey Baby Sweetheart, and Wild Roses, for those of you that have just tuned in, is that there's some of the most complicated and interesting relationships are not necessarily occurring with your teen protagonist. They're mm-hmm. actually occurring between the adults in the novel. Mm-hmm. And I guess I was wondering um, what is so interesting about maybe failed relationships with parents to you that makes you want to write about that sort of thing, mm-hmm. you know, with different complications, of course, sure. again, and again. I think what's interesting to me about that is actually the ways that we're all the same. You know, we I think we draw this line between teens and adults, and I don't think they feel that line. And, and as a parent of teenagers, um, I think that line is very blurry. And so uh, it's interesting to me for to, to write about the connections that we have, no matter what our ages are. So uh, that, yes, we have screwed up love lives as adults. And, yes, teenagers have screwed up love lives, and the elderly sometimes have screwed up love lives. And the, the, the places that, that we all intersect, I think, is what's most interesting to me. I mean, one of the, the big moments, really, of, of becoming an adult and, and coming of age is when we look at our parents and realize how human they are. I mean, and I don't mean that point where we realize how flawed they are, which comes maybe earlier, but when we really see them as a human being with the same kinds of issues that we have. And I think that's, that's, that interests me. Um, and... Do you think that maybe adult readers versus teen readers or younger readers take away different things from those stories? 
or maybe the same sort of thing that you just said? Yeah, I think that they I think they do take away. I think that just like going on in life and our age sort of shadows the way we think about different experiences that sure they will look at adults will look at it, at my coming of age stories and and apply different experiences that they've had in their lives to the reading and teens will apply other things perhaps adults just bring a few more layers of experience into their reading and so yeah they they will they will talk about the ways that they had felt like that <laughs> when they were that age and the way they still do feel like that now that they're this age so yeah they probably just bring an extra an extra layer to the reading so how um are your stories related to your own life experience Oh my gosh, that's kind of the thing that everyone wants to know. It's like, I think there's something about being a writer that people like to sort of unzip and see what's real and what's not. And it's always a really hard question to answer because, you know, there are the major plot elements where there's a murder and, you know, a father commits a, a crime of passion in one book and, uh, and, uh, an elderly woman is abducted from a rest home in the second book and, and a girl is dealing with a mad genius stepfather in the third book. And, you know, none of those major plot elements have, have happened to me. Thank goodness I'll have to say that to clear my father's name, who's, you know, who's a very wonderful man and would never think of committing a crime of passion, I don't think. Um, and I've never abducted an elderly person from a rest home, but there may be still time for that. I don't know. But um, If you ever need someone to abduct you, you can let us know. Yeah, just... Yeah, just send me an email, and and I'll and I'll get the forces ready to help you out. But, um, but you know the the other pieces of of a novel, you you experience all of those. You know, you've you've fallen in love, you've gotten your heart broken, you've been disillusioned, you felt that you know the world was just too much for you. Sometimes it's just you just were at your breaking point. Um, you know, all those all those human experiences i bring that um i think that's a writer's job you know to find that commonality that that those those pieces of the human condition we all share so hopefully i bring those (laughs) hopefully mothers and children and and divorce and those kinds of things that i have experienced hopefully I'll, i'll bring a hopefully i try for humorous but you know take on and maybe offering a, a new way of looking at it piece to, to those experiences. Your novels feature a number of interesting and vivid characters and settings um, from the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Are these based on real people and places? I know like I've recognized some of the places <laughs> specifically there, from the there is from there. Yes, so. <laughs> yeah. I grew up there. So. Oh! Oh, you do recognize. I, the best for me was um, in The Queen of Everything when Jordan is walking through the woods towards the like McKinnon family plot. Have you been there? I have been there. Harbor? And <laughs> it is terrifying, and I could not imagine being there at night. And like, I, you I just, actually, you've been to that place that where that stone table is? Yeah. Isn't that creepy? <laughs> I knew, like, I just knew that that's where she was headed when I was reading the book. <laughs> Place. It is very so cool, creepy. Isn't it? I like. I had to call my mother and say, <laughs> "I'm reading this book, and guess where the girl is going?" <laughs> it's it's a little bit of an unforgettable place. Yeah. It's, um, 
I don't know that, how many people know about it. Oh, Maybe I we should start a bus tour of, of all the scenes in your novel. Oh, yeah. You so can just imagine the, like, ghosts coming up and sitting <laughs> around the table at night. Like, oh, my goodness. It is the scariest because place. Because it's a... For anyone who hasn't tumbled down that road and found it, it's a stone table in a forest with stone chairs around it, and it's a family plot. Wow. Which is very... Well, I don't know. There's a lot of words you could describe. Unforgettable, one. Yeah, definitely. And it's creepy, but it, but there's there's something sort of wonderful and permanent about it, along with the creepiness. Maybe that's what I liked. I don't know. Yeah. But you know, where where every member of that family has a permanent place with each other. Maybe that's not such a good thing. I don't know. But uh, so yes, that was real. But um, you also probably realized that that I didn't pluck Friday Harbor and Roach Harbor uh, or any of the islands yeah. out in it in their entirety, that I just sort of like to take bits and parts and and put them together, which um, it's kind of nice because it's that powerful feeling when you can move mountains and towns, you know, those things you can't do in real life. Um, but also it helps me avoid the letters from people saying, you got this wrong. <laughs> so, so... Um, Honey Baby Sweetheart is actually very much the the area where I live now, which is the the town of Issaquah, which is a suburb of of Seattle. (laughs) And so the paragliders and all that is definitely real. I see that every day when I I, uh, cruise down the road. And they do get stuck in trees. And so all of that is, is very much kind of my northwest home. And the characters, well, you know, I plucked some of those from real life as well. There was a bagpipe player, actually, that used to appear at strange places of town. Um, and I decided that he was just too irresistible not to use. And um, I did see a, a big old Oldsmobile, he, this big old thing with a license plate, Ms. June, and a little fluff of gray hair in the driver's seat and uh, i decided she just had to be part of part of some book somewhere um the funny thing was i was at a book signing and this little lady with all of the stack of books uh came up to me to have me sign them and i thought well you're not a relative of mine (laughs) so you have some interest in this book that's not familial uh and so she told me well I have a I have a big car and my license plate says Miss June. That's my name. <laughs> so, so um, she had read about it in the paper and and appeared. And so sometimes it's <laughs> it's fun that you meet your characters uh, later on. <laughs> Was she a nurse uh, nursing home escapee? Almost at nursery no. school. <laughs> That's a whole different book. <laughs> I haven't written that one yet. Nursing school escapee. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you know I'm what sure I meant. <laughs> you know what I meant. Um, where was I? Okay, and I guess in accordance or in um, as an extension of that question, um, Wild Roses is very much about classical music and and um, how the study of it can be so um, all encompassing. Um, for the people who are musicians, are you actually a classical music fan, or have you studied music? <laughs> Okay, I am, I, this is my confession, 
And this is like something you're not supposed to say, but no, I'm not a classical music fan. Doesn't that sound, I don't know. It's like the, I should know about fine wines and I should know about classical music and I should, you know. No, I'm really not. I'm a rock and roll girl, and I don't play anything. I could, I could maybe play, you know, like like the character in the book, the tissue paper comb, in the kindergarten band, or you know, like those sand blocks that <laughs> you go, shh, shh, shh. you know, maybe I could do that. But no, I don't play an instrument. Um, I'm not even really a fan. It's just my children, however, are classical musicians. Um, I don't know where they got the ability or the talent, uh, but my daughter plays the cello, my son plays the viola, and they have for many years. And so I was actually at a Seattle Symphony rehearsal uh, with them watching this, and I saw the, I was watching the conductor, and I was just sitting in one of the auditorium seats, and he had this magnificent white blouse on with these big sleeves and he was conducting with such passion and purpose that you could see it and feel it in the way that those sleeves were just were just swaying and and flowing and it was just really sitting there in that seat and watching his sleeves uh that you know where the where that book was was born it's just thinking about the purpose and intensity of of creativity and i've always been very intrigued with with creativity and where it comes from and and why it can why it can why people can get tipped over to the other side with it you know that that connection between creativity and madness i think it's fascinating One, two, three, four. You're listening to WCBN 88.3 FM Ann Arbor, otherwise known as WCBN FM Ann Arbor. For those of you at the FCC, we are talking to Deb Coletti today on Living Writers. Free Speech Radio News is coming up in about a half an hour. Stay tuned for the rest of the interview, including the now-necessary Gossip Girl reference, Giggle Fits, and much, much more. Maybe even some talking about books. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. This is Living Writers. Um, I'm one of your hosts, Molly. I'm here with my co-host, Sarah, and the author, Deb Coletti, who has written Wild Roses, her latest, Honey Baby Sweetheart, and The Queen of Everything. So what sort of feedback do you get from your fans? And 
Um, do you ever hear from parents of girls who have read your book? On occasion. <laughs> I get wonderful feedback. It's one of my favorite parts, really, of, of writing. It's, it's, it's an astonishing thing to hear from people who read your books. Sometimes I forget that people are going to be reading my books. I get so involved in writing them. And so it's, it's wonderful. And I hear, I hear people, especially who've read The Queen of Everything, I get a lot of letters from kids who say, thank you, and some, some part of it had, they had obtained strength from. Um, I think because the character in the book goes through so much and manages to sort of find her way. So I get a lot of those kind of letters from people who read that book. And then I get a lot of letters from people who just sort of fall in love with certain characters and want to talk about that. Um, People asking for sequels (laughs) quite a bit. Uh, And yes, on occasion I'll hear from a parent. Sometimes it's a parent who snitched their uh, child's book and ended up really liking it. And only on occasion do I get the the person who writes and say that I'm in big trouble for some of the stuff I've written in there, and I should mend my wicked ways and should, you know, stop the swearing before I am, you know, going to go to hell or having some sort of Ooh. internal damnation. So only a few of those. But I do get those on occasion. So what are your feelings about um, obscenity and mature content in teen fiction? Well, um, obviously there is profanity in my books. uh, And I don't put it there to make things exciting or interesting. Um, My job, my biggest job as a writer is to be honest, to tell the truth. Uh, that's that's what we're here for, I think. That's a writer's job. And so, you know, naturally, as in the real world, there are people who swear, and there are people who would never think of it. So in my books, the people who would never think of it, never think of it. <laughs> the ones who do, do. Because that's just the way the real world works. And I think why I have a connection to my audiences is that teens recognize that I'm not giving them a false or prettied up world. And, um, you know, I've, I've read some teen books that have been cleaned up, and sometimes um, some publishers or, or book clubs will ask an author to clean up a book. Mine, thankfully, doesn't. And I've read them. And, man, those characters can be doing anything in those books. But there won't be, a, you know, a swear word in the whole thing. And it's just, it's an odd read. I read one and thought, wait, something, something's wrong here. I don't quite know what it is. Something's just weird here. So um, so I think that, you know, do we, if my job, I don't know. My job is not a parent's job. My job is a writer's job, and that is to give, give people an honest an honest world. And uh, as far as mature content goes, you know, I, I think that teens are dealing with a lot in their world. Certainly they hear profanity going from one locker to another. Um, and mature content, you know, this is, this is their world. So let's write about it and discuss it. 
Um, I guess as an extension of that also, what draws you to writing about such complicated issues? For instance, um, for those of you listening who are not familiar with um, Deb Coletti's works, one of them features an adulterous relationship that a parent is having, um, another sort of um, some mental problems perhaps stemming from overwork or who knows what, um, unhealthy relationships between parents Mm -hmm. in which one is more dependent. What draws you to want to write about that sort of thing? As opposed to just the problems, um, like really wanting to have a boyfriend or well, simple divorce. That just, <laughs> that just doesn't really feed me, you know. Um, maybe as a person, as a reader, and certainly as a writer, it just doesn't feed me. I, I don't get a lot from reading those types of books. And and it's great, you know, whatever people are reading is, is fine with me as long as they're reading. But... Um, it just doesn't give me a lot of of stuff to to delve into and look at in terms of the human condition. And I think that I I would like to offer teens something a little bit more thought provoking and thematically complex, perhaps interesting, other than the girl goes to the beach and looks for the hot guy. You know, it just we deserve we deserve more than that. And and you know part of part of that question is just simply plot because it makes it interesting and the other part of that question is that i think that the idea of when things start getting out of our control uh it's is it makes for i don't know interesting literature what happens then when things really go awry how do we handle how do we handle that because these are things you know if we think that teens haven't had a parent who's had an adulterous relationship or a stepfather that's that's off the rails oh my gosh <laughs> oh my gosh yeah. um, they can relate well maybe we wish that they can't but they can mm-hmm. i mean it definitely does seem like um in each of the books it comes to a point where at least the teen protagonist um feels like Things are very much out of their control. Mm-hmm. But sometimes they seem as though things sort of happen to and around them rather than mm-hmm. they make things happen. It's not as, I mean, it's their story. It's they're the ones telling the story, but maybe they're in some ways telling their reactions to events mm-hmm. or flo- and floating through events that really are happening to them. Is this an intentional um, decision you made about their voice? No, um, no, not really. Other than, again, part of that is just plot. You know, what what's going to happen next and and part of that is just life mm-hmm. I, I would love to be able to control the events around me but but i don't feel that that's that's uh something that really happens that often i mean we 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 have to spend a lot of time responding and really that's when things get interesting it's it's what now what then um i, I always say life is you know, like reaching under the couch cushions. You never know what you're going to get. You know, there might be the old popcorn under there, or you might come up with a $20 bill. You just don't know. And and uh, so, no, I think it's just more of a reflection of, of, of real life, is that we don't know. I guess one of the things I'm thinking of are some of the relationships um, your mm-hmm. protagonist gets in, in The Queen of Everything. It's with a boy named Kale. And she's the one making the decision saying, 
I will go, I will call him back. But in some ways, it almost feels as though she's compelled. She always keeps saying, mm-hmm. well, I don't know why I did that. Do you think that that's the way a lot of teens feel about maybe the bad or not so good decisions that they make? Yeah, I think that we, we do a lot of things that we don't necessarily know why. I mean, it's wonderful to think that we're all always logical and, and thoughtful uh, decisive people, but <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. But how often are we, and how often are other things working under the the surface that we don't even we don't even understand? How much of our you know response is is some some subconscious uh, archaic pieces of us that you know? It, I think that quite a bit, quite a bit, and. And sometimes we can be all very, very clear, and sometimes it's it's a bit muddled, and we're just kind of making our way uh, amidst a lot of jagged pieces and parts. So aside from indecisiveness, what do you think are the most pressing issues young women face? Well, I think that young women, young men... Old women, middle-aged women and men, uh, you know, we've all got this, this sort of primary issue, which is self-definition and the search for meaning, figuring out who we want to be and how we want to get to that. I mean, everything basically comes down to that, doesn't it? I mean, even drug use comes down to that, even body image is, is comes down to that. So, so I think it's a it's a huge thing for young women to to figure out who we are and 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 who we want to be and who we wish we were. And I think it's a I think it's we've gone back a little bit in time uh, in the messages that we're giving young women, unfortunately. And that a lot of that self-definition comes back again to, like you were saying before, the the looking for the hot guy. I think we've I think we've regressed a bit in that department um, in the messages we're giving young women. It's really too bad that we're still sort of thinking we can find those things and find that self-definition through somebody else. So um, that's something that my books address a bit. Why do you think it is that so many teenage girls are interested in that romantic story? Because almost all of the books that we read um, in the young adult canon involve that, or even to us, you know, we're in our mid-20s, early 20s. Exactly. It feels empty without it, and I I don't even care if they get together with the guy, really. Right, you don't. But so what are we, I guess that comes back to your earlier question, and that is, like, what are we feeding, what are we feeding our teens by what we put out there i mean it's hard to know what's what right is it chicken or the egg i mean is mm-hmm. it are they focused on it because that's all they get or do is that all they get because they're focused on it um, i really don't know the answer to that but i think perhaps it would be a good thing to give them a little bit more uh more often so that so that perhaps their their vision and their world can open up a bit instead of having that focus. But if you go and look, look at what's on the covers, you know, you've got the, we're back to the <laughs> large percentage of books with the girls in the bathing suits on the cover, you know? It's just, I, I worry for our, I worry for young women. I really do. It's, it's just, I feel like we're going backwards some ways. 
But do you feel like um, there might be a place for that sort of sort of silly fiction? Oh, sure. But maybe that it's it shouldn't be all that's offered, or do you yeah, kind of think everything absolutely. should have substance? I think sure there is. I mean, because because I like really really wonderful writing. But you know, when I'm in a doctor's office, I'll read the People magazine. Of course, I don't know who who any of the people are in the People magazine, but I won't read it. And peop- and yes, I think that again, as long as young people are reading. That's that's wonderful. So yes, of course there are places for that, but perhaps we can just up the percentage a bit of of the other stuff that's offered. You know, um, I guess also in relation to that, how do you feel about the way your books are marketed to young women, the covers and things like that? Um, well, do you have much control at all, or I? D- d- well, they're actually going to be completely redesigned, so that will be kind of interesting to mm-hmm. see um, what. What happens? Um, I've I've been pleased so far. I you know there aren't too many. You know, no one's really in a bathing suit. <laughs> no one's walking on a beach. <laughs> um, I so I've been pleased. And do I have control over the covers? Well, I get input. I think it's um, the uh, Wild Roses, for example, went through several kind of cover discussions and that kind of thing. So it's it's a little bit of a rarity, but yeah, I, I'm able to have some input onto what what goes on there. Um, I, I like how they're marketed for the most part. I would love to see some of them in some of the adult sections so that adults who want to read my work aren't, aren't sort of lost finding it. We can move some for you at Barnes & Noble. <laughs> we actually did that... Did you do that with some okay. Megan McCafferty books, Sarah? I did some Sarah got mad. <laughs> Sarah got mad that there were no Megan McCafferty books in the young adult section, I, I believe. You know what I'm so talking she moved about. them. <laughs> well, so you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you don't yeah. want to. Yeah, I think you want to feel comfortable in finding them, right? You don't want to have to go there, but you like to read them. So yeah, exactly. That's that's what I'm talking about. You're listening to Living Writers here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Molly. My co-host Sarah and I did an interview a couple of weeks ago with author Deb Coletti, and we're listening to that today. So stay tuned for the rest of the interview. Um, If this is your first time tuning into the show or you want to hear the part of the interview you missed, you can go to iTunes under Podcasts and look for Living Writers. The artist is WCBN staff, I believe, and you can check out our backlog for many, many, many weeks. And... Coming up, the third part of the interview, Free Speech Radio News and Closets Are for Clothes starts at 6. to Living Writers here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Today we're talking with Deb Coletti, author of a number of books, including her latest, Wild Roses. 
Um, getting back to sort of the messages that we send young women about what they should be like or maybe the messages they send us about what they want to be like, do you think of your books as feminist? Do you think of yourself as one or have, you know, a specific sort of political or personal message for girls or do you just want to tell a really good story that maybe has some substance to it? Well, for me as a writer, story has to story has to come first. Actually, before story comes, character for me has to come first. So I don't, I don't set out ever to preach or give a message. I, I just, I don't like to be preached to, and, and my God, I can't, <laughs> I can't possibly give people a message. You know, I have a hard enough time sometimes finding match socks to wear, you know, so I don't feel that that's my place. Um, my place is to to bring uh, hopefully people who are vivid enough to feel that they are breathing and that they're humorous and that you want to spend time with and people you would actually want to sit down and have a cup of coffee with and that perhaps hopefully that you'll miss when you close the covers. That's my that's my real aim is to, to is just to you know bring some breathing people into the world um of course i think about what do i want what i want to say in a in a year's worth of writing a book it would be pointless to, to me not to do something like that but i never really try to preach i think i i bring more answers to a book than i bring i mean excuse me more questions to a book than i bring answers but that's just for me, life in general, I don't really have a lot of answers, but I have a lot of questions. And um, and as far as being a feminist, uh, yes, definitely, absolutely. Um, I'm somebody who is sort of set out to structure my life the way that I want it, and and with intention, and um, and with a lot of passion. And I would certainly love to see uh, that's something that I taught my daughter and my son, <laughs> and and uh, and I think that's that's hugely important for young women not to feel that, like you said, you know, that they're always acted upon rather than acting. I think that's a that's an important thing to, you know, for young women to be able to feel. What were some of your favorite books growing up that maybe helped solidify those ideas or not, and why did you like them so much? Well, I grew up in the in the Judy Bloom age, you know, and um, and Norma Klein and uh, the mixed up files of Miss Basilie Frankweiler. And how about old Nancy Drew? I mean, you guys, I don't know if you've ever read her, but but boy, was she ever a you know? Sure, she had the flippy do hair and everything, but she was man. She she went out and found those mysteries and solved them and dealt with those guys, you know, in a pretty powerful way. And and this was not the 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 passive sleeping beauty. <laughs> so somebody really went out there and and accomplished things. So so those were some of the things I read when I was younger, and uh, I read everything when I was younger as I do now. Um, you may be interested to know that I think they're going to update the Nancy Drew series to give her a convertible and make her older and oh, possibly goodness. her hair oh, will be even vote. more flippy. Oh, but they're not going to make her like a Barbie, are they? Um, it's unfair. Oh, no. unfair. <laughs> I don't know. I did always like it when she teamed up with the Hardy Boys. Yeah. That was- <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Those were some fun ones. Do you I just thought you Mrs. might want to be prepared. <laughs> do you think that they're going to do anything with Mrs. Grew and the housekeeper? I always thought she could use a little lightening up. I don't know. I mean, her. I read an article about updating it and trying to make it more in line with sort of a li- not necessarily racier, racier, but giving her more self-doubt was what it was about, which is oh, more maybe not what you're interested in. in a bikini, and that'll give her more self-doubt. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's Put her true. in a bikini and give her self-doubt? I don't or, know if she'll be in a bikini, but she'll be in a convertible yeah. with self-doubt. Convertible. I want to be in a convertible no matter how much self-doubt. Do you think you have more self-doubt in a convertible or less? Like, I don't know. I mean, your hair has to look way worse. Sure, exactly, True. which I think requires a degree of self-confidence, don't you? <laughs> less than self, more than self-doubt? I don't know. It's just yeah, a I circle. Know. Well, this will be interesting. Vicious we'll have cycle. to see. Yeah. Do you have any other projects in the works? I see that there's a new book coming out sometime Yeah, there's soon. a new book coming out uh, March of next year, uh, which is called The Nature of Jade. And uh, it's about a young girl who has anxiety, but I'm quick to say that it's not an issue book about a girl with anxiety because they don't like, I'm not one for issue books. Um, but this is just... Uh, part of what she deals with in her life and she goes to actually the woodland park zoo and starts working with some of the elephants there and gets involved uh in the story of a young boy that has a baby so all of that said it's actually a book about fear and the ways that we sort of cage ourselves and moving on we are in about an hour interviewing live a woman who wrote a book about elephants. Oh, really? Which is just interesting. Just came out. <laughs> Her name is Sarah Gruen, and the book is called Water for Elephants. Oh, wait, I just saw that. I was, um, it's in the book review um, for New York Times, actually, last weekend. Yeah, I just saw that book. Um, I was with Nancy Pearl, you know, the woman who wrote Book Lust and all those wonderful mm. and do, taping a show of hers and... Mm. We were just discussing that book. How interesting. <laughs> yeah. Just heard elephants. If you heard us a little bit of quiet giggling, we weren't laughing at you. We were laughing at circumstance. Um, <laughs> this is the second laughing. interview in which I wanted to bring up that book. Because <laughs> we're not laughing at you. No. We're laughing with you. About you. <laughs> what was the other one, Sarah? When I interviewed the guy who used to... Write <laughs> porno oh, screenplays. <laughs> <laughs> no, we shouldn't cut this out. <laughs> wow. He um, let's just. I'm gonna just gonna cut this in at some point while we're talking about feminism. Where oh, Sarah good. says, "Oh, I interviewed this guy that did porno screenplays. Why don't you start like that, and then we can put this conversation." Well, in. when I interviewed this guy who wrote porno screenplays, <laughs> um, <laughs> he was speaking about like the divide between the like the writers and the talent and there's the same sort of divide in um water for elephants between like the circus performers and the workers uh-huh. so at that interview i also wanted to be wait, like wait oh. wait wait but i have a question here yes porno screenplays the writers and the talent oh you mean like the writers and the performers yeah <laughs> uh, then there's a divide like the the performers don't like, Rage, to talk right? to the writers, like, and they, they hate having to 
you know, shoot the scripts at the end because they shoot the scripts. Oh, they would like like to they shoot all the dialogue. (laughs) They shoot all the dialogue at the very end of filming, and they call it like the fast forward because no one watches it. It was interesting. There was dialogue in those, but apparently it's a twenty-page script (laughs) for a movie. Yeah, we should become that. I should become that kind of writer. That sounds like so easy. Do they count Ua's dialogue? I don't know, but they call anything over one like, syllable. <laughs> well, there's a rule about not having like three syllable words. No. But also, if you write like any spoken part over like three lines, it's a monologue. <gasps> You're kidding! <laughs> it's but over intense. three syllable words. Isn't that something? Yeah. yeah. Have you ever thought about writing a screenplay? <laughs> not one of those. No. <laughs> Yeah, like, it, yeah. I like dialogue too much. Mine would be talking. They'd be like, come on, can we get on with it? Yeah. <laughs> they, what are they doing? They're having a conversation. They're talking about life and, and purpose and, and everything. This isn't right. That's why all your characters get into all this trouble. It's too much talk. <laughs> exactly. Wow, wait till you read my next book, man. It's going to be steaming. They're going to be flying up. It's only going to be 20 pages long. <laughs> I guess since that's a book, it can maybe go for 30 or 35. Maybe. And yeah, well, I could write like five books. No, I could write 10 books a year. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you guys, I want to just thank you for this, this idea for this new career. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that these books we're talking about are maybe called Gossip Girl, not to put your books down that you like, Sarah, but... Oh. The books that are so easy to write and fly off the shelves, and you can write ten a year. Oh, and I, do, and I really and don't, don't really have any dialogue. Yeah, and I don't. And I they're don't. not. They're not as bad as that. I'm no, just saying and, this because people Sarah's. really love them, and that's that's cool. I don't. That's wonderful. Sarah mm. takes these digs personally. That's this why I not, say them. Are true. you okay? Do I need to send you some chocolate so we can still be friends? It's not your fault. It's me. <laughs> um. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. I'm happy you're reading. That's, that's what matters to me. <laughs> really? Oh. At least we know you can read. Yeah, <laughs> we know you can read. That's always a good thing. Wow. Yeah, we should definitely turn this into an announcement. At least we know you can read. Listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> this show is hosted by a girl who we know can read. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, and one that we're not so sure about. Yeah, <laughs> that would be me. Um, oh, no. You guys are funny. Well, that other books project was supposed to be like the the, the last like question, but did you have anything you wanted to read? This is a little bit from Honey Baby Sweetheart. This is when uh, Ruby's mother has just recently uh, told her that Ruby's father is kind of coming back into town. People drive too fast on Cummings Road. Regular cars whip down it in the darkness. Semi-trucks on occasion, too, come so fast in the other direction that your windows rattle. And on rainy days, you're sprayed with blinding splats of water. People have lost their lives on that road. But, of course, it's worse for animals. Almost every morning, you'll see a dead animal or two, a deflated lump of fur, the thick side of a deer. You get so used to seeing something like that out there that your heart sinks automatically and you end up sending compassionate feeling to a clump of carpet that fell out the back of someone's truck. Sometimes 
you feel very sorry for those animals, and other times you run out of pity and become impatient with their stupidity. You wonder why, with all the lulls in traffic, they will choose that moment to dart out across the road. I mean, an animal's instinct for survival is supposed to be so keen, right? Yet, here's the rattling of a semi coming closer and louder with every second, and the wind starts rumbling, the streets shaking, beams of headlights blaring from the darkness, and boom! That's when the animal shoots out from its safe haven and meets his end. You know how when people die, they're supposed to see a single brilliant light, my mother once asked? These animals see a pair of them. I can't help but think that sometimes it's possum slash raccoon slash deer suicide. Like this poor possum has simply had enough of rooting around for food, fighting the troubles of daily existence, tired of being just so ugly, and says to himself, now. If so, there are a lot of depressed animals out there and more depressed possums than any other species. Seventeen, my brother Chip Jr. said from the back seat of the car the day after I had first seen Travis Becker. Chip Jr. unzipped his backpack, fished around inside, and took out a small spiral notepad. I heard the ticka as he pressed the end of his pen into working position with his thumb. He entered the new number into his book, then clicked the pen closed again. This was Chip Jr.'s roadkill tally. Seventeen was the number of days the two raccoons, whom we named Romeo and Juliet for their joint jaunt into death, had been lying in their spot on the side of the road. I wonder if I should call someone, my mother said. I never knew who to call. It was a mystery who picked the animals up. They would be there, and then they'd be gone. I'd never once seen it happen. What a job. It beats the record of that possum. Fourteen days, Chip Jr. reported. Love is rough, I said, though I knew nothing about this personally. My mother started singing some song. Romeo and Juliet, she sang. She rolled down her window a bit, stuck her nose out to smell the nearly summer air. Ah, she said. She was in a good mood, and I knew why. You're messing up my hair, I said to her. It's a mess already, Chip Jr. said. I looked over my shoulder and glared at him. It looks like the dogs. Quit kicking the bottom of my seat. I wouldn't put my foot near your butt for a million dollars, Chip Jr. said. Guys, my mother said, but she wasn't really paying attention. I think we both wanted her to. We wanted her to keep being our mother and not be transformed into this other woman we knew was coming. We were throwing bombs in the road. Trying to make her remember who she really was. One thing was for sure, my mother would have been a lot better off had Chip Jr. and I been in charge of her heart. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Molly. I'm here with my co-host, Sarah, and we've been talking to Deb Coletti, author of The Queen of Everything, Honey Baby Sweetheart, and her latest, Wild Roses. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks, guys. We look forward to your uh, future projects, whatever they may be. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You're listening to WCBN-FM. This is Living Writers, as you just heard. Hopefully you enjoyed the interview with Deb Coletti. If you want to check out um, the books or the interviews we were giggling about just a little while ago, um, we were talking about the book Fast Forward by Eric Spitznagel and the interview we did a couple of weeks ago with author Sarah Gruen, who wrote Water for Elephants. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week. Um, We're going to have an interview that Ashley did a little while ago. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you remember her as your school year host 
who's unfortunately out of town right now. And it's time for Free Speech Radio News. Wednesday, the 21st of June, 2006, this is Free Speech Radio News. From KPFK in L.A., I'm Ara Bogado. A majority of Democratic lawmakers on Capitol Hill signal they'll support a moderate measure of troop withdrawal. We'll hear from Oaxaca on the political tensions brewing in that state just two weeks before Mexico's presidential elections. And Louisiana shrimpers make their way to their capital, demanding an investigation into price fixing. We're still living in a FEMA trailer right now. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, every time you turn around, it's just, it's just one headache after all. We'll bring you these stories and more after the headlines. I'm Shannon Young with the Free Speech Radio News headlines. Gunmen murdered an attorney on Saddam Hussein's defense team today. Khamis al-Ubaidi is the third attorney killed during the course of the trial of the former Iraqi leader and his seven co-defendants. Saddam Hussein and his co-defendants have reportedly begun a hunger strike to call for international protection for the defense team. Elsewhere in Iraq, the Agence France Press is reporting that over 100 Iraqi workers were abducted today by gunmen at the end of their shifts in a factory complex north of Baghdad. Four people, including three children, have been killed in the West Bank and Gaza Strip in the past 24 hours. Manar Jabrin reports. An Israeli undercover army unit backed by armored vehicles clashed with Palestinians today during a pre-dawn invasion at Ain Beit el refugee camp near the West Bank city of Nablus. The Israeli soldiers fired live ammunition at Palestinian resistance fighters, killing 21-year-old Daoud al-Khatouni and injuring two members of Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, the armed wing of Fatah. In the northern Gaza Strip, an Israeli warplane fired a missile on a Palestinian car in a failed assassination attempt on Tuesday night. The targets were meant to